We're going to sort of wrap up our series on baptism tonight. It's kind of the last piece of that. I obviously, and I'm sure you'll find at the end of the evening, will not have answered every objection or walked through every discussion by the time tonight's done. There will be a few that will come over the coming months, maybe one every month or two, to deal with some other issues. And part of the reason for spreading that out is just we've done a burst. I then have some obligations for filming for Radius. And I think, importantly, we don't want to just talk about this topic continually. It's important, but it isn't the main thing. So the Christ who baptism signs is the main thing, and we want to focus there. So with that said, why don't you pray with me as we get started. Father, we are thankful for the privilege of gathering on this Lord's Day evening. We're thankful for the continued rain, for the beauty in your creation, the way you sustain and provide, particularly coming on the heels of three years of drought for you to provide this. We In a year we so desperately needed it, we give thanks for your continual provision. We give thanks for the redemption that we have in Christ, the privilege of knowing him and making him known. We pray that as we consider your word together tonight, you would guard our minds from error, help us to receive your word as It is as the word of God, we pray that your son would be exalted in Jesus' name, amen. So here's been my contention throughout the series. We have one covenant promise and one covenant people. Fundamentally, I've been saying and we've been saying that the Christian faith has never changed in its promise or its parties but only in its outward administration. In other words, the Christian faith has never changed in its promise nor its parties, but only in its outward administration and in its, if you will, eschatological moment from the former days to the latter days as we move from Old Testament type and shadow to New Testament fulfillment. The last four weeks I have provided a kind of syllogism for my argument for baptizing believers and their children. I'm not going to tease out in full tonight, but I'm just going to remind you of the first premise essentially was all those who are members of the new covenant people ought to receive the covenant sign of baptism. All those who are members of the new covenant people ought to receive the covenant sign of baptism. On this, the Presbyterian and Reformed and Reformed Baptists are agreed. Premise two Believers and their children are members of the New Covenant people. On this, Presbyterian, Reformed, and Baptists disagree. Baptists would say that believers are members of the New Covenant people, but not their children. Now, I dealt with that the last two weeks, so I won't deal with it again tonight. Conclusion to the premises I've given. The conclusion, thus, believers and their children ought to receive the New Covenant sign Of baptism. In other words, if the first two premises are true, then the third follows is what I've argued. Now, I have maintained thus far that the question of baptism really boils down to our understanding of God's covenant and God's people. I've argued there's only one covenant promise being visibly administered in distinct biblical covenants. And I've argued that Christ is the sum and substance of every one of those covenants. He is the one covenant promise. And I've argued that all professing believers and their children are members of the visible church, and thus they should all receive the sign of the new covenant. Now, because Baptists reject the notion that we have the same covenant promises and the same covenant parties in every biblical covenant, they come to the new covenant sign with a kind of distinct set of demands. Things that they want answered. When they come to the new covenant sign of baptism, they tend to ask two questions. These aren't all they ask, but this is one of those things with which they approach the text. One is, 
show me an explicit command in the new covenant to baptize our children prior to them professing faith. A second is, show me an explicit example of an infant of professing believers being baptized. They demand this evidence because because they do not believe that we have the same covenant promise and the same covenant parties across the Bible in every covenant. That changes for them in the new covenant. Therefore, they want proof that the same parties are to receive and are receiving the covenant sign of baptism. Now, Baptists are correct that baptism is a sacrament of the new covenant. But what I'm arguing is that they, as I'm saying I once was, are incorrect that we need an explicit command to include infants or an explicit example that they are included. They were included in the Old Testament sign and seal of circumcision, and I'm arguing that they ought to be included in the New Testament sign of baptism. What I'm contending is that the proper question is this. Where is the proof that the children are now excluded? Clearly, if we had, clearly, if we had an explicit command or an explicit example in either direction, the debate would be over. There wouldn't even be a debate. But I want to submit that this sort of argumentation falls flat. And let me start by considering, just briefly, the other new covenant sacrament, communion or the Lord's Supper. There is no explicit command for, nor any explicit example of, a woman receiving the Lord's Supper. So we do not base our practice of communing women on that ground. By the way, none of us are arguing that women shouldn't receive the Lord's Supper, just in case anybody's a little bit extreme. We do not base our practice of communing women on that ground. We make an argument from good and necessary consequence to include women in the Lord's Supper. And what I'm arguing is that we ought to be doing the same with baptizing the children of believers. Now, here's what I'm arguing. I'm arguing that Baptists are demanding the wrong questions be answered because they're misunderstanding the covenant and people of God. That's the fundamental disagreement. Further, I've been arguing that they're reading the New Testament texts in a manner that's foreign to the context of the testimony of Scripture and the original audience itself. I've been arguing that they're missing the clear continuity between the same covenant promise and the same covenant parties in every biblical covenant. Now, you have to listen to the last four sermons to hear that argument. But here's my thesis tonight, stated simply. My thesis stated simply is baptism has replaced circumcision. Now, let me restate that thesis with a bit more nuance. The Old Testament sign and seal of covenant inclusion, of covenant membership, was circumcision. The Old Testament sign and seal of circumcision was applied to professing believers and their children by the command of God, namely their eight-day-old sons. The new covenant sign and seal of covenant inclusion is baptism. The new covenant sign and seal of covenant inclusion ought to be applied to professing believers and their children by the same command of God. I'm arguing that We have always been commanded to apply the sign and seal of the covenant to our children and that this command has never been revoked. You see where I'm pressing the question on where the weight of the evidence belongs. Does it belong on the need for an explicit command and example or does the weight belong on the need for an explicit revocation? And I'm saying it belongs in the area of needing a revocation. I'm arguing that we have always been commanded to apply the sign and seal of the covenant to our children, and it's never been revoked. Here again are the premises and conclusion. If the children of professing believers are parties to the same covenant promise, 
then they ought to receive the covenant sign of initiation into the covenant people. So here goes the question. I dealt with some of that last week, but here goes the question. Does baptism really replace circumcision? And thus, can we say the command carries over and that the command still applies? I argued last week that children of believers are still covenant parties in both the Old and New Testament, but does baptism as a covenant sign replace circumcision as a covenant sign? I'm arguing that while the sign itself changed, the command and the parties did not change. So we need to ask, does baptism function as a new covenant sign and seal in the place of Old Testament circumcision? Now we know, and I'm going to deal with this a little bit, not extensively or exhaustively, but somewhat, we know that the outward and administrative differences between baptism and circumcision are obvious. One is bloody and is only applied to males, and as regards children, only applied to males on the eighth day. The other is water, and is applied to males and females, and not on a particular day. Those are clear outward differences. So I'm not arguing that the outward external form is the same. Obviously, the outward external form is not the same. You understand circumcision and baptism in external form do not look the same at all. Different covenant administrations, I'm saying, have different outward forms. For example, we worshiped the same triune God in the old covenant, yet at a temple. Now we worship him in spirit and truth wherever God's people gather. We looked forward to the coming Christ to the type of slaughtered animals. We no longer do that. Outward forms between the covenants change. But what I'm saying is the inward spiritual reality hasn't changed, though the outward form has. And I'm arguing that baptism and circumcision sign and seal the same spiritual, same inward spiritual realities. So on that ground, I'm arguing that baptism does replace circumcision as the sign and seal of covenant initiation. I'm arguing that baptism and circumcision directly correspond in five ways. So here's essentially the argument I'm going to make on their correspondence. First, first way, which I'll take most quickly, circumcision and baptism sign the same relation to the visible church. Circumcision and baptism sign the same relation to the visible church. They both are signs of covenant entrance or welcome or being counted among the church's people. Second, circumcision and baptism sign the same covenant promise. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, the seed of the woman. Third, circumcision and baptism sign and seal the same covenant benefits. Union with the triune Lord, righteousness by faith, and regeneration or inward cleansing. Fourth, baptism and circumcision sign the same solemn call. Believe in the Lord Jesus and repent of your sins. Fifth, circumcision and baptism sign and seal the same moving cause. The love of God being sovereignly and graciously poured out upon helpless sinners in Christ and by the Spirit. Now, I'll walk through each of those correspondences briefly. I could do a sermon on each one, but no one really wants to hear that. So I want you to pay attention, really, to the cumulative case. Let's begin by looking at our first correspondence between baptism and circumcision. First one is this. Circumcision and baptism sign the same relation to the visible church a relation of entrance or welcome or being counted among her people. Now, I won't say much about this point. The reason is that Reformed Baptists and Presbyterian Reformed all accept this already. 
Uh, You won't go into any Baptist church that denies that baptism is the sign of initiation or entrance into the visible church. We all believe that baptism is the sign of covenant initiation. If you're a member of the visible church, then you receive the sign of baptism. The debate is over who is a member of the visible church, not over whether all the members of the visible church have a right to the sign of covenant membership. We all agree that that was how they were signed in the Old Testament as well, by circumcision. So let's look at the second correspondence between baptism and circumcision then, and this is where we'll dig in a little bit more. Circumcision and baptism sign and seal the same covenant promise. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, the Messiah, the seed of the woman, Circumcision has always signed and sealed the covenant promise of Jesus Christ. We know that from the Abrahamic covenant. From Genesis 3.15 on, we're looking for who? The promised seed of the woman. The promised seed of the woman is the Christ. He is the sum and substance, not only of Genesis 3.15, but he is the sum and substance of the Abrahamic covenant. God would bless all the families of the earth through the seed or the offspring of Abraham. When Christ is incarnate, Mary and Zechariah praise God for keeping his covenant with Abraham. And circumcision was clearly the covenant sign of that promise. Look at Genesis 17, 7. Again, we're going to go fairly quickly in this passage because we're not doing an entire exposition here of Genesis 17. We'll be moving there in coming weeks. But look at verse 7, Genesis 17, 7 and 8. We looked at this last week, but I want to press it just a bit further today. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now he's going to tell them to keep that covenant, and look at what he goes on to say in verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. That's why it can be called, for example, in Acts 7, the covenant of circumcision. Because the covenant sign and the reality are so closely identified here. Then he goes on to say, Between me and you, your offspring, every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. There's an identity between the sign and the thing signified or the thing being promised. They're closely related. Circumcision promises to Abraham. It's a sign of the promise to Abraham. I will be your God and you will be my people. I'll be God to you and to your children after you. That is the Emmanuel principle that runs through every biblical covenant. And that covenant promise is signed upon Abraham's children as well because God promised to be God to you and to your children after you. So the sign of circumcision was to be given to the infant children of Abraham. Look at Genesis 17, 12, and 13. You guys understand, this is not the controversial part, (laughs) right? Genesis 17, 12, and 13. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Thus Abraham was to circumcise every male infant and every male in his household. There's a federal principle at work here. It's not strictly a genealogical principle. It isn't everyone who's physically descended from Abraham, but everyone under Abraham's authority in his household. If they're under the authority of Abraham's household, then they are to receive the sign of circumcision. 
But here's the question. Why only males, and with regard to infants, only males on the eighth day? Now, we must remember that female children were not excluded from the covenant people, but they did not receive the covenant sign. God never says in the Old Testament, only your male children are the children to whom I'll be God. It's only the male children, however, who receive the covenant sign. Why is that? Well, because of the purpose of that sign. That sign clearly points forward to the seed of the woman, the son of Abraham who was to come. Thus, the sign of cleansing the male sexual organ through whom the son of Abraham would come is obviously given to males. It points to all this through a bloody, cutting sign. Further, that sign was expressly given on the eighth day. Throughout the Torah, the eighth day is often the day of atoning sacrifice or offerings. And it always follows a mandatory seven-day period of cleansing. This is why the male is set apart to the Lord via circumcision after seven days of cleansing. Remember that the pattern of the creation account in Genesis 7 is seven days. So the eighth day pattern would represent the first day of the next week. The first day of the next week is Sunday. The day of the resurrection of the Christ. The beginning of the new creation in Christ. My point is that the bloody cutting sign of circumcision of the male member on the eighth day was a type and shadow of the atoning and cleansing work of Christ that ushered in the new creation in him. You might argue that this connection between circumcision and Christ's atoning and cleansing work, though, is a stretch. That sounds, sounds lovely, but it sounds like a stretch. So look at Colossians 2. Turn over to Colossians 2 and look at verse 11. There's a context here, obviously, in Colossians. And again, I don't have time to exposit this entire context. But the basic notion is there are people who are trying to practice a kind of syncretism in the Colossian church and recommending a sort of severity to the body and other kind of external forms for holiness or sanctification. And Paul is taking that notion on. In the midst of that, he says this, Colossians 2 and verse 11, in him, that is in Christ, as he's been saying all along, in him or in Christ, also you, you Colossians, were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, whether this passage is arguing that the circumcision of Christ means his work on the cross, and you might say, the circumcision of Christ is his work on the cross by the putting off of the body of the flesh. Why do they? some scholars argue that? Look up at chapter 1, verse 22. He, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. See, he's reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. And some say that by putting off the body of flesh is a reference to the death of Christ. In other words, that being his cutting or his circumcision on the cross. But whether the passage is referring to the circumcision of Christ or if it's referring to Christ's work by the Spirit in applying the atonement of Christ to us, which you could also be talking about, the point remains. Here's the point. Circumcision was a type and shadow pointing to the work of Christ and its application to us. I didn't say circumcision was a type and shadow pointing to baptism. I said circumcision was a type and shadow of the work of Christ and its application to us. The Old Testament was providing us types, but Christ 
is the substance. That's why Paul goes on in Colossians 2.16 to say, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Baptism also signs the promise of Christ. I'm saying circumcision signs the promise of Christ. That seems manifestly clear. Baptism also signs the promise of Christ. Nobody argues about that part. So let's keep moving for the sake of time to our second correspondence. My point in the second point, just to summarize, as we move to the third point, is that baptism and circumcision sign the same covenant promise, Christ. Third point, circumcision and baptism sign and seal the same covenant benefits. Sign and seal the same covenant benefits. Not just the same covenant promise, but the same covenant benefits. I'm going to give you three of them. Union with the triune Lord, righteousness by faith, and regeneration or cleansing. And cleansing really is a package. I'm putting them together. First, circumcision and baptism both sign and seal union with the triune Lord. God's promise is, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be God to you and to your children after you. Circumcision signed and sealed that promise. And what was the great benefit there? Union with the triune Lord. You're his. He's yours. There's only one God, you understand that, the triune Lord. He promises you are his and he is yours. And that's the same thing we see in baptism. You baptize them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. To be baptized into the name, I'm arguing, is to be signed and sealed with the promise of union with God through Christ and by the Spirit. This union in Christ is clear in passages like Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We have been buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What you're receiving in baptism and circumcision is a sign and seal of a benefit of Christ, union with our triune Lord. Second benefit, baptism and circumcision both sign and seal righteousness by faith. We believe in Christ and we're baptized as a sign of the forgiveness of sins and declaration of righteousness that we receive. We looked at that already last week. This was also true with Abraham. Look with me at Romans 4. Romans 4 and verse 11. Speaking of Abraham, Romans 4 and verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, he had righteousness by faith prior to his circumcision. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 17, he gets circumcised. As a sign and seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Now, We can go on. Here's the point. Abraham received the sign and seal of righteousness by faith, or what we'll say, justification by faith, after he believed. But Abraham was then commanded by God to give that sign and seal of justification by faith to his infant children. Give that some thought. Did those infants believe? Did Isaac believe at birth? No. Yet he received the sign and seal of Righteousness by faith. If your objection to infant baptism is, if it's merely, but the infants don't believe, so how could they receive the sign and seal of justification by faith? In other words, if your objection is that people should not receive a sign of justification by faith unless they actually possess faith, 
and that's an absolute truth, then you should first subject to God's command to Abraham. Isaac received a sign and seal of justification by faith before he possessed faith. You might reply, but God knew he would believe as he predestined him to faith. However, God knew that Esau would not believe. Esau was reprobate. Yet as an infant, Esau was still given the sign and seal of justification by faith. On what basis? The sovereign institution of God. So baptism and circumcision both sign and seal righteousness by faith. And giving either to infants, I want to be really clear about this, giving either to infant children does not mean we're actually arguing that they possess the promise being signed. We're not saying they possess righteousness by faith. We're saying they are being promised or offered righteousness by faith. Third, baptism and circumcision both sign and seal regeneration and cleansing. This is the third benefit. Baptism and circumcision both sign and seal regeneration and cleansing. Circumcision always signed and sealed regeneration and cleansing of the heart. It always did. Listen to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The Lord promises here that he will cleanse their hearts and the hearts of their children and give them new hearts so that they will love the Lord. This is speaking to being cleansed, to being born again, to be given a new heart. This is similar to the new covenant promise language we hear in Ezekiel 36.25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean of all your uncleanness, and from your, all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, I would argue that Jesus is commenting on this very passage in John 3 when he speaks of baptism by water and the spirit. I don't have time to go into that right now. Baptism, those signs and seals, this same reality is a circumcision. You've been washed Titus 3, 5. Listen to Colossians 2, 11 and 13, though, through 13 again. If you want to look back at that passage again, you may. But listen to what it says. In him. In fact, I encourage you to look there. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That's a spiritual circumcision. If you don't understand that, then go through and read the various places in the New Testament where it talks about something being done without hands. It's something being done by the Lord himself. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And he goes on to talk about nailing them to the cross. Now, I don't know if you followed that. You were circumcised. How? Having been buried with him in baptism. You were circumcised, main verb. What's the means? Here's the participle. Having been buried with him in baptism. There's a direct correspondence. You were circumcised, new covenant believer, circumcised in the heart, how? Having been buried with him in baptism. These covenant signs point to the same covenant benefits. Circumcision is accomplished in you through being buried with him in baptism. Now be careful. Be careful. None of us are arguing that physical circumcision or water baptism guarantees you have these benefits. None of us. We're saying those benefits are signed and sealed in physical circumcision or water baptism. If you do not believe, if you do not believe, then 
while the promises have been offered to you, they are not of any saving benefit to you. You must possess faith to have the benefits of salvation. You hear that? Without faith, the sacraments are of no saving efficacy. And this leads to my fourth correspondence, fourth major heading here. Circumcision and baptism sign the same solemn call. The same solemn call. In other words, believe in the Lord Jesus and repent of your sins. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 16. And I want you to hear how the Lord's election and covenant with Israel is to be responded to. Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you chose you above all peoples as you are this day. Now, here's a response. Ready? Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. God covenanted grace to you. Now, repent. Be made new. Listen to Jeremiah 4.4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. This is Jeremiah 4.4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like a fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. He's speaking to his covenant people, the Old Testament church, and saying that his wrath is going to be against them if they don't repent and believe. Notice the Lord circumcises the heart. We saw that in Deuteronomy 30. The Lord circumcises the heart, yet the Old Testament church is called to circumcise their hearts. The Lord regenerates you and gives you the gift of faith. Right? Philippians 129. It's been not only given to us to suffer, but to believe. Faith is a gift, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We can go on and on. The Lord gives you new birth. It's a birth from above, and he gives you the gift of faith. Yet, you're commanded to believe and to repent. Circumcision in the foreskin of the flesh was a summons to be circumcised in the heart. And it was a promise that God would circumcise the hearts of all his elect. Baptism is also a summons to faith and a promise that God will circumcise or baptize, if you will, the hearts of all his elect. Ultimately, baptism is only effectual to salvation if you believe. Apart from faith, there's no saving power in baptism. This is where we learn the lesson of Simon Magus. He was baptized, but he turned out to be a false professor. So his baptism, though valid, and understand what I'm saying, valid in the sense that Peter rightly baptized him upon a credible profession of faith. Though it was valid, it did not save him. Circumcision did not give you the saving promises of God apart from faith either. Look at Romans 2 and verse 25. For circumcision indeed is a value... If you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised, in other words, that's like a Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he was physically uncircumcised, but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code, in other words, they have the law, and circumcision, but break the law. For no one, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision, nor circumcision outward, 
and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Hear what Paul says circumcision is. You're not a true Jew just by getting the sign and seal of circumcision. You might be a member of the visible church. You were a member of the visible church. You were outwardly connected to the people of God, but you're not a member of the invisible church. You're not a Jew inwardly. Listen to what Paul says. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. The primary purpose of circumcision was never outward and physical belonging to the people. I know I hear this all the time. Circumcision marked out a national people. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Other peoples around Israel were circumcised. Not all of them. The Philistines clearly weren't. Greeks weren't. But some of the other peoples were. Now, what was different with Israel is they circumcised their sons on the eighth day. It wasn't just a rite of passage as you got older. It was a covenant sign. Further, there are people in the Old Testament who were circumcised who were not members of the nation of Israel. Ishmael, Esau. I mean, I'm just dealing with two of the first four sons. It isn't just some kind of national ethnic identity marker. Now, does it come to serve that purpose in certain ways? Yes. Was that ever its primary purpose? No. No. The primary purpose of circumcision was never outward and physical belonging to the people. It was always a sign and seal of inward heart faith promised in the covenant. But here comes an objection. If God makes promises to me and to my children and then gives a sign and seal of those promises in circumcision or in baptism, and then my child does not believe those promises, have not God's promises failed? What was the use of giving that sign and seal in the first place if my child never believes? Well, let's see what Paul says with regard to circumcision. Chapter 3 and verse 1 of Romans. Then what advantage? In other words, if it's not outward but inward, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. How so? To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. See, God made promises to them. He entrusted to them. He gave them a sign and seal of those promises. But what, verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Because they didn't believe the promises. They didn't believe what the sign and seal said. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. By no means. God's promises do not fail because you refuse his gracious offer. If I come to you and say, listen, I promise you a new car. Children, I'll address you. I promise you a new car. If you come to my house when you're an adult, now this is purely hypothetical, kids. I promise you a new car if you come to my house when you're an adult. And then I give you a certificate. It's like, this is the sign of my promise. And I put my seal on it saying, my word is good. You can take it to the bank. And then you never come and receive the car. Has my promise failed? No. No. And God's promise is that everyone, listen, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. If you do not call on him, then you bear that responsibility. You might provide another objection, though. But only the Lord's elect will ever believe. That's manifestly true. However, that does not negate his promise that all who believe in him will be saved. That merely tells us that only the elect will truly believe in him. And election has nothing to do with the ground for a minister applying circumcision in the Old Testament. How do we know that? Ishmael was circumcised. Esau was circumcised. Neither elect. Nor is that the ground for baptism in the New Covenant. I never have baptized someone on the ground that they're elect. Never. 
I baptize those who are visible members of Christ's church. And I'm arguing that visible members of Christ's church are made up of professing believers and their children. That point I just made is not where Baptists disagree. Reformed Baptists also agree that they do not baptize anybody on the grounds of election. They believe they baptize them on the grounds that they belong in Christ's visible church. They just don't like the last three words I used. The visible church is made up of believers and their children. They disagree with that. If you want more on that, see last week's sermon. Fifth and finally, circumcision and baptism sign and seal the same moving cause. They sign and seal the same moving cause. I'm speaking analogically here when I talk about the moving cause, but I want you to hear what I'm saying. The love of God... Here's the moving cause. The love of God being sovereignly and graciously poured out upon helpless sinners in Christ and by the Spirit. The moving cause of every covenant promise is the same. The love of God, I'm talking about post-fall, the love of God being sovereignly and graciously poured out upon helpless sinners in Christ and by the Spirit. Friends, when you as a sinner are baptized... Something is being done to you, not by you. Not by you. You don't baptize yourself. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You are passive in that. It's being done to you. And when we baptize you, we baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And what we're doing is we're seeing there and applying to you there a sign of God's promises Namely, Christ and all his benefits. That's why we don't baptize you and say, as we do it, look at all that faith. We say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be wet to profess faith. You understand that? You can profess faith with your mouth while perfectly dry. Now, I'm not saying that baptism in no way signs faith. I just made the argument it does. Righteousness by faith. You are humbly and passively receiving the sign and seal of God's covenant promise. You did not earn even one iota of God's covenant promise. Your faith did not earn the covenant promise for you. Your faith is a response to God's grace to you in Christ. When we baptize someone at Sovereign Grace, I know we might think about a range of things. Isn't it nice to hear, to see that person give a testimony of their faith? Isn't that sweet? I'm encouraged, etc. But listen, whenever you're at a baptism, you ought to be thinking, behold your God. What manner of love is this? Oh, that God would be so kind as to make promises to one so helpless and sinful as this man who stands before us. And he did the same for me. And when we baptize an infant of a church member, we're saying the same thing. Behold your God. What manner of love is this? Oh, that God would be so kind as to make promises to one so helpless as this child born in sin. And he did the same for me. Even me. How marvelous his grace is that the first and definitive move is always his and never mine. As I wrap up the series, I want to be clear. I want to be clear of this. I know I've not answered every question. I will come back, like I said, in the coming months and deal with questions like mode of baptism, children at the Lord's table. What about that? What happens to infants and mentally retarded children when they die apart from faith? But I encourage you to wrestle with some questions. If the Lord removed children from the covenant and the people, Wouldn't you expect to see that spelled out after 2,000 years of them being included in the covenant and people over? Wouldn't you expect some spelling out of their removal? All the other major changes were spelled out. The dietary laws, those changes were spelled out. The Sabbath day change, the sacrificial system. Even the fact that Gentiles do not need circumcision 
was dealt with. Why would the new covenant exclude your children without a mention? While providing every Old Testament pattern that indicates the children are included. See last week's sermon. If God's grace has been given in a more expansive way in the new covenant, as we see in the baptism of male and female, then why would children now be excluded? With that said, in the meantime, I want you to know this, I think, on behalf of the elders, I want to be really clear. We have a deep love and thankfulness for every one of you, whether you agree or not. Whether you agree or not. I want you to know that that we hope you'll prayerfully consider this. I also want you to know, however, that we respect you and appreciate you, and our respect and appreciation for you does not waver one bit if you disagree. Not one bit. We're pilgrims, owned by the mercy and grace of God in Christ, trying to walk faithfully in accord with his word. That's what we are. We know you're doing the same, and that's all that we can ask. I leave you with these important words of the Apostle Paul. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. May the Lord be pleased to cause that to be increasingly true in our hearts and minds. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word as we walk through it. Help us to love and respect and care for one another well, to be thankful for Christ and his church. Father, help us to be those who who live sincerely in obedience and faith in your word. Who to the best of our ability walk in accord with what we believe your word is teaching. Who honor the name of your son in doing that. And who love one another even in the face of a disagreement like this particular issue. Help us to know the truth, to believe the truth, and to walk in love. Love for Christ and love for one another, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.